are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our Thursday afternoon, or at least it's afternoon here on the West Coast of the United States, live question and answer time. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. I am a pastor, and many people, or if people know about me, they might know about me or have run across my work. I have an online written commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful. And we also have a presence here on YouTube. Uh, We're grateful for our YouTube audience. I do have to say that we're getting up close to 100,000 subscribers. And when we hit 100,000 subscribers, we're going to have a very special giveaway. I'll tell you a little bit more about that because I think it's going to take us at least another couple weeks to get there. But uh, thank you for subscribing. Of course, as always, I'm supposed to say... Click subscribe, click notifications, click like. Apparently, it all helps with the algorithm that helps more people run across our content online. What we normally do on the question and answer time is we begin with a question from uh, leftover from last week when we couldn't get to all the questions. Uh, Maybe comes in by email, maybe on social media. This particular question comes from Heather who I believe submitted the question via Facebook. I can't remember for sure, but I think that's how Heather brought us this question. Before I get to Heather's question, I do simply want to say welcome to our TWR360 audience. TWR, of course, is that great ministry trans world radio that for many decades has been doing an outstanding work reaching the world for both evangelism with the gospel, but then also discipleship for great Bible teaching through shortwave radio And their presence online is called TWR360. So we want to welcome our TWR360 viewers and um, just say very glad that you're a part of it. We love for you to communicate your questions on the live chat. And we also just kind of love hearing where you're viewing from in our live audience. It's just kind of great to see that we have viewers from all over the world. Okay, now on to Heather's question, which is our lead question for today which you saw it on the thumbnail, you saw it on that kind of thing. It just kind of is saying, a Solomon or Jesus, who's right? And let me explain the question from Heather. This is what she asks. She says, how do we view Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, in comparison to John 15, chapter 13? Uh, Jesus actually is our surety or guarantee, and he has paid the debt for our sins and our obligations. So in reality, we could never pay the debt for somebody else, let alone ourselves. It therefore points to Jesus as the only one who can put up security for any of us. So, she asks, are we to follow the wisdom, she puts wisdom in quotes, of Solomon, or are we to follow the example of Jesus? Now, I'm going to read to you Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 in just a moment, but I I do just want to tell you that Proverbs chapter 6, 1 through 5 says, don't put yourself as a surety or a pledge or a guarantee to somebody else. Heather goes on in her question, I say that we're to follow the example of Jesus to be willing to lay your life down, not to pay for somebody's sins per se, 
But to take on their burden as it is your own is a function of the church and a function of Christianity. We are to bear each other's burdens and outdo one another in showing each other honor. This is something that allows us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God and a way to love others and love God. By the way, I love in Heather's question, she's weaving in some passages from the New Testament and bear one another's burdens, outdo one another in showing love. So here's Heather's question. Can you explain how we should view Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 in relation to John 15, 13 in one of your Q&A sessions? Thank you. Okay, Heather, well, I'm going to do my best to address this right now. So the first thing we should do is take a look at these relevant passages that Heather brings up. First of all, Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, where we read, My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you've shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself plead with your friend, give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids, deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So we'll talk about that passage in just a moment, but clearly it's Solomon's counsel in the Proverbs that you should not become a guarantee, a surety, uh, you know, a, a cosigner for somebody else unwisely, or Solomon would probably say, in any circumstance. Okay, now, Heather's asking us to take a look at that in comparison to John chapter 15, verse 13, which says, Jesus, of course, speaking these words, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So, I can kind of see the question as Heather brings it to us. What are we doing here? Solomon says, don't be again, don't lay down your life, at least your financial life for somebody else. And Jesus seems to say, do this. How are we supposed to do this? Or just to repeat Heather's question, can you explain how we should view Proverbs chapter six, verses one through five in relation to John 15, 13, uh, here in one of our Q&A sessions? So let's talk about this. First of all, regarding Proverbs Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Let's understand a few things. First of all, Solomon warned his son against guaranteeing the debts of another person, whether they were a friend or whether they were a stranger. And, and this was a promise to pay the debts of the friend or the stranger if they failed to pay. You see, th this really wasn't like paying off someone's debt that they had accumulated in the past, nor was it like loaning somebody money or giving them money. It wasn't exactly even like co-signing a loan. In modern financial terms, it was more like guaranteeing someone's open line of credit. So it's not like, okay, you're going to buy this. It's of a fixed amount. We know how much it is and whether or not I'll help you buy that or co-sign for it. No, this is, again, like guaranteeing someone's open line of credit. And Solomon says, don't do that. You'll be snared by the words of your mouth. To promise to pay the future debts of another person is to put yourself in a trap. It's a promise that you make with the words of your mouth, but it's going to affect, and it will affect, 
your wallet or your purse. So Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, is a warning against guaranteeing, against promising to pay the future debts of someone else. Now, I would just say, financially speaking, this is pretty good advice. Don't give to somebody else an open-ended credit card and say, don't worry about it. Whatever you put on it, I'll pay it. That's sort of analogous to what Solomon is saying, don't do. Now, to understand Proverbs chapter 6, we need to understand the nature of the book of Proverbs as a whole. I have to admit to you, as I taught verse by verse through the Bible, and as I prepared teaching notes or Bible commentary, that's what my teaching notes effectively became, is Bible commentary for other people. The last book in the Bible that I addressed was Proverbs. I was sort of intimidated by Proverbs as an expositor because Proverbs is different from every other book of the Bible. There's brief portions of other books of the Bible that kind of read like Proverbs, but as a whole, Proverbs is different because Proverbs deals much more with principles than with absolute, what we might call, laws. As a book of the Bible, Proverbs is unique in its theology. It's concerned with practical life wisdom much more than it is about God and his work of salvation. There is very little pure theology in the book of Proverbs, and there's almost nothing in it about how to be saved, how to be right with God. It's a book about wise living. Now, the Proverbs, again, from the book of Proverbs, are amazingly successful as being what they, at being what they are. What are they? They're Proverbs. They're not prophecies. They're not systematic theologies. By design, Proverbs lay out observations, very insightful observations, things that were meant to be memorized and meditated upon. They're not intended to be applied across the board to every situation without qualification. Matter of fact, if you were to do that, then the book of Proverbs would contradict itself. Proverbs often do this, and I mean Proverbs in the Bible and Proverbs that we just say in our normal, you know, everyday life. Here's an example from the book of Proverbs. Check this out. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. (laughs) Then verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. I wouldn't blame somebody for reading Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, and saying, what's going on here? Verse 4 tells me to not answer a fool according to his folly. And verse 5 tells me that I should answer a fool according to his folly. Which is it? Am I supposed to answer a fool according to his folly or not? And the answer, of course, is it depends Sometimes the right thing to do is to not answer a fool according to his folly. Other times, it is the right thing to answer the fool according to his folly. You see, overall, the book of Proverbs doesn't give commands that apply universally in every circumstance. It gives principles 
for wise living that need to be applied wisely. Now, so with that in mind, let's compare Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, with what Jesus said in John 15, 13. Remember what Jesus says, greater love has no man than he lay down his life for a friend. And then, at least financially speaking, Solomon says, don't lay down your life. Don't guarantee for somebody else. Well, look, I, I think I kind of tipped my hand already there. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 deals with financial matters. John chapter 15, verse 13 deals with sacrificing oneself, giving oneself in a much broader way, especially relevant to what Jesus did at the cross. Friends, when Jesus said, greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends, do, do you know whom he first had in mind with that statement? Of course, it was himself. Jesus is the ultimate one, the one who had a love greater than anybody else's love as he laid down his life, <laughs> not only for his friends, but for his enemies. Jesus was speaking in the most relevant way to his own sacrifice on the cross. So, we can say that Proverbs 6 and John 15 are dealing with different areas, financial, and then the other one, much broader areas, spiritual and everything. Now, here's another thing. John 15, 13 speaks of a sacrifice that does good for someone else. I want you to think about this. If you gave somebody a credit card and said, you spend however much you want on this credit card and I'll always pay all the bills, let me ask you, would that be good for that person in every circumstance? And the answer is, of course, no. For, for some people, maybe even many people, it wouldn't be good to give them that kind of um, unrestrained resource that they didn't work for at all. You see, it may not do good to guarantee another person's future debts. It's wise, if it is wise to take on all the future debts of someone else, you have to ask, is that actually helping them? The other thing we need to say is that the laying down of Jesus's life was unique. It expressed a love that goes beyond anything we can do. That's one of the points of Romans chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. Let me read that to you here. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, is making that contrast that there's no way that we can compare the sacrifice of what Jesus did on the cross with what anybody else has ever done, past, present, or future. No, no, make no mistake about it. When Jesus spoke of the greater love of John chapter 15, verse 13, he was first and foremost pointing at his own love for humanity. Now, I've read of times in history when courageous Christians gave themselves 
as slaves in exchange for others, to set them free. This happened in the early church. Let let, let me read to you a quote from Clement of Rome, one of the early church writers, apart from the biblical writers. He was born in the first century AD and lived at the same time as as, uh, most of the people in the New Testament. Here is a quote from Clement of Alexandria. He said, uh, excuse me, Clement of Rome, we know many among ourselves who have given themselves up to bonds in order that they might ransom others. Many too have surrendered themselves to slavery, that with the price which they received for themselves, that they might provide food for others. Now that's some remarkable love, don't you think? The love that will say, um, I'll lay down my life for somebody to help them out financially. But again, that wasn't done for the future debts of somebody else, like giving them an open credit card or an open line of credit. It was done to pay for things that had been done in the past. By the way, we also know in church history that this happened in 12th century Spain. When the Moors, that is the Muslims who occupied much of Spain in those centuries, would kidnap and enslave Christians. There were committed Christians of the order of the Mercedarians who were so dedicated to seeing Christian slaves set free that they would sometimes give themselves in exchange. Now, those are remarkable demonstrations of love and sacrifice and examples of what Jesus spoke about in John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. But this is really sort of unrelated to the financial advice of Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. I'm not saying that there's no overlap, but really Jesus wasn't talking about guaranteeing the future debts of somebody else. Let me conclude this with a last word from Charles Bridges, a commentator on Proverbs. When I studied through Proverbs, I noticed this quote from Charles Bridges. Um, And again, he comments on Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, understanding something of the question that Heather asked. And I like how he gives this contrast. This is what Charles Bridges wrote. He said, our God, while he warns us against putting up security, has taken it on himself. May his name be praised for this. He has given us his word, his bond, yes, his blood as security for sinners, which no power of hell can shake. So, I wouldn't say we have a contradiction here, Heather, but what we have is a glorious paradox that Jesus Christ, in the greatness of his love, has done things for us that, strictly financially speaking, we would be unwise to do for other people. Heather, I hope that helps you, and thank you for that question. I'm going to head on now to the questions that come in in the live chat, taking a look at them here, getting set up here. Uh, Here's a question from Jesper. Thank you, Jesper. Uh, Nice to see you there in Sweden. I hope it's not too cold for you there now. Okay, Jesper asked this question. Um, Is it permissible for Christians to eat blood pudding? Thinking of Acts chapter 15, verses 20 and 29. Okay. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, there was a very strict prohibition of Christians eating blood. And this very strict prohibition of Christians, excuse me, of the Jewish people, 
let me take that back, a very strict prohibition of the Jewish people eating blood. And there were many reasons for that prohibition, uh, but that was a command given to Israel. In the New Testament, the dietary laws were set aside for believers, whether those believers came from a Jewish background or from a Gentile background. But what Jesper is pointing out is in the letter that the apostles wrote to the early Christians, telling them that they did not have to become Jews in order to become Christians first, that they as Gentiles could go directly to Jesus. They didn't have to go through Moses, but they could go directly to Jesus. They also said, hey, because, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing these passages from Acts chapter 15 that Jesper's alluding to, verses 20 and 29. What they said to the believers was, since Moses is preached in these cities, since there are substantial Jewish populations, we want you to abstain from the eating of blood. Now, I want you to notice something here, Jesper. They qualified that for the reason that Moses was preached in these cities, that there were substantial Jewish populations in these cities, which wasn't the case everywhere in the Roman Empire. For example, when Paul came to the city of Philippi, which was a big city, there were so few Jewish people there that they didn't even have, what is it, 10 Jewish men that's required for a uh, synagogue. They didn't even have the required number of 10 Jewish men in the community. So they met by the riverside outside, which would be the custom of Jewish people if there were not 10 Jewish men with which to have a synagogue. A big city, but a very small Jewish community. Now, where there was a substantial Jewish community, the idea was we don't want to needlessly antagonize them. So, hey, Gentile Christians, lay off the eating of blood, lay off the meat sacrifice to idols. Now, they also say lay off the immorality, but, but that's also roundly condemned in other passages in the New Testament. The, the immorality doesn't really match with the other two things in the sense of something being set aside. So, the main reason was don't needlessly offend the Jewish community where you live. And, and yes, bro, I would give the same counsel anybody wanted to eat. First of all, if anybody would eat blood pudding today, blood sausage, I'd say, don't eat that stuff. It's nasty. Look, I, I apologize to anybody who likes it. Yes, bro, maybe you like it. I know it's a Scandinavian thing, uh, but uh, the, the little I've tasted of it, no thank you. But if somebody did like it, this is what I'd say. It does not go against God's command, either in the old covenant to Israel or in the new covenant under Acts chapter 15, verses 20 or 29, unless it would needlessly offend Jewish people that you would hope to evangelize in your community. That, that's really how I would put it to you there, Jesper. So I, I would say that generally speaking, it is permissible if one wanted to do so. Hope that helps you there and blessings to you in the new year. Susan asks a question. Hi, Pastor David, please explain God's glory. What Psalm 3.3 means by God is my glory. Uh, Psalm 3, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, 
my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Susan, like many words or ideas in the Bible, glory doesn't have just one narrow definition. A lot of times it needs to be determined by the context. So we, we don't want to assign just one narrow definition to glory. Like um, we could define glory as it relates to God as being the radiance of his being, the outshining of his person. You know, in the Old Testament, you have the cloud of glory, sometimes called the Shekinah. God displays his glory. I've just been reading in the book of Numbers where repeatedly God displays his glory. That's sort of his radiance, the outshining of his being. Now, it's obvious that Psalm 3, verse 3, doesn't use it in exactly the same way because there the psalmist, and I can't remember if that's David or not, the psalmist there says, you're my glory. You see, Everybody has something that they glory in. They glory in their accomplishments. They glory in their family. They glory in their heritage. They glory in their possessions. They glory in, David says, or whoever wrote Psalm 3, again, I I haven't looked at if it's attributed to an author. The author of Psalm 3 says, Lord, you're my glory. You're my radiance. You're the expression of everything good and powerful and mighty and wonderful in my life. Just as God's glory is sort of the outshining of who he is and everything that's good and wonderful and mighty and beautiful in God, it shines out of him as his glory. So there is a glory of God, of course, And there is some kind of glory of man. The two can't be compared. But what a beautiful thing it is for somebody to say to the Lord, you are my glory. Lord, I don't glory in my uh, social media clout. I don't glory in how many likes or, you know, thumbs ups I get. I don't glory in the praise of man or the number in my bank account. I glory in you. That's a beautiful and a powerful thing. So really, uh, Susan, I'm just getting at the thing that the, the idea in some ways of glory is similar, whether it's applied to God or man, but uh, the actual glory of God and man is different in that respect. Hope that helps you there. Adonis asks a question and says, is the gospel of free grace or easy believism a false gospel? If so, then are believers of that gospel estranged from Jesus of Nazareth, uh, so to say, not born again? Okay, Adonis, of course, a lot of it rests on the definition of the gospel of free grace, the gospel of easy believism. A lot of it depends on how a person defines that. So let, let me speak to you in the terms that I would be comfortable with saying it. If someone believes that a mere mental agreement 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. If somebody thinks that a mere mental agreement that, that is not supported by repentance, by an ongoing life of trust and love and dependence in and reliance upon Jesus Christ, but if they think that a mere superficial intellectual assent, if they think that saves, if that's how a person defines easy believism, then Adonis, you're absolutely right. That will not save anybody. We need to realize that we are saved by grace alone. We don't save ourselves. And that grace is received by faith alone. But this faith is not a mere agreement intellectually. This faith will actually include repentance. You know, it's a wonderful thing to see in the scriptures how the first word of the gospel is repent. Look, I, I, don't, I don't rip off people's sermons very often. Really, I can only think of once that I've done it in any kind of measure. But I, I did rip off a sermon from a great preacher, a great man of God of a previous generation, J. Edwin Orr. And I want to let everyone know, when I would preach this message, I would let people know that I got the outline, I got the, the, uh, the, the message of this, not word for word, but the message of this from a great preacher named Dr. J. Edwin Orr. And, and he has a wonderful message that I have followed in outline called the first word of the gospel. In that message, he points out how the first word in the mouth of John the Baptist was repent. The first word in the mouth of Jesus as he preached was repent. The first word or exhortation or command to do something on behalf of the apostles, Peter, for example, in Acts chapter 2 was repent. Repent, repent, repent. That is part of the message of the gospel. But we should never think that repentance is something different than faith. Repentance and faith go together. You might say that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. If I trust in, rely on, and cling to Jesus Christ, especially what he's done for me at the cross and burying my sin and in his resurrection and giving me new life, if I trust in, rely on, and cling to that, it means that I stop trusting in, relying on, and clinging to everything else moving away from everything else, that's a pretty good description of repentance. Turning to Jesus, that's faith. So, repentance and faith are two parts of the same coin. And if somebody really believes that they can believe without leaving behind things that are against God, then they haven't understood. So, there are people, and I always feel a little cautious when I talk like this, but there are people who think that they are born again and they are not. There are people who have made a very superficial half step towards God, but they've been told, hey man, that's enough, you're in. Now, listen, I, I believe in calling people to decision. 
I believe in leading people in prayer for salvation. But those things must be understood as a first step upon which other steps must follow. They're important first steps, but that's what they are as first steps. So, Adonis, I don't know if I've answered your question fully there, um, but yes, there are people who have a bare intellectual agreement, and they might say they're believers, but their belief doesn't translate into any kind of repentance or any kind of real trusting in, relying on, and clinging to who Jesus is and what he did to save them. That kind of faith, as James points out again and again, that kind of faith will not save. Let me go on to the next question from Jordan, who asks, why isn't God more explicit on certain matters that cause contention among his people? For example, pre-trib versus post-trib, Baptist versus Pentecostal, tithing versus not tithing. Well, Jordan, I, I, I don't know if I could tell you why, other than to say I mean, obviously, God had his wisdom in making some things very clear and sort of without controversy in the scriptures. And look, when I say without controversy, I don't mean that there's not somebody somewhere that would raise a controversy about it. Look, there are some people, some places who say that Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin. There's people who dispute that. Well, listen, away with them. Honestly. And when I say away with them, I don't mean that they should be punished. I'm just saying that they shouldn't be taken seriously. If you can take something that the Bible clearly says and just act or talk as if the Bible does say it, well, then forget that. There are certain things like that that are beyond controversy. You either believe it or you don't believe it. But there's other things, as you point out. There are other things that Christians look at with different perspective. Spiritual gifts eschatology, that is the teaching of what's going to happen in the end times, the last days, giving. I think one reason is, is because God wants us to be humble about such things. Now, look, I I want you to know that I feel at peace with my understanding of eschatology in the Bible. I feel at peace with my understanding. Uh, if you want to give titles to it, I'm pre-millennial. I'm pre-tribulational. This is my understanding of what the Bible teaches having to do with eschatology, and I am at peace with it. However, I don't despise people who believe differently. I think they're wrong. Of course I think they're wrong. But I understand how they came to their conclusions. And I don't think they're crazy, and I don't think they're insincere. Now, let me tell you what that gives me. That gives me an opportunity to exercise love. And I think that God has allowed certain things to be less clear in the scriptures so that we would have both humility in regard to ourselves and love for others. But, I want to stress this again. Woe to those who act as if nothing is clear in the scriptures. For some reason, this is a special source of irritation to me lately, where people will act as if because the Bible isn't crystal clear on everything, 
They act as if the Bible isn't crystal clear on anything and on many things, most things, the essential things. The Bible is clear. And I'll just say this. In these areas of dispute, giving, spiritual gifts, eschatology, there is often more agreement among believers than is commonly thought. A lot of the disagreement has to do with things on the edges, on the periphery. All right, hope that's helpful for you there, Jordan. Next question comes from Antoinette, who says, Solomon believed in God and his entire family line was blessed by God. Towards the end of his life, he did, he did not do good in God's eyes. Why didn't God make him realize his sin and repent like David? Okay, Antoinette, some people think that he did. Some people think that Ecclesiastes was written at the end of Solomon's life And it was sort of his confession about his error, his folly earlier in his life. I suppose that's possible, but it is by no means certain. As we take the record of Solomon's life as it's given to us in 1 Kings and in Chronicles, God doesn't tell us about Solomon's repentance. Now, again, there are some people say, well, Ecclesiastes is Solomon's repentance. And I would give a great big maybe to that. But as to why God doesn't tell us about Solomon's repentance, I think God didn't tell us that out of a warning. I think it's a very important warning for us. See, the warning is simply this, that Uh, Nobody is so smart, nobody is so blessed, nobody is so gifted that they don't need to take heed lest they fall away. Friends, do you realize how important that is? Solomon was an incredibly blessed man. Solomon was a man who had so much at his own disposal. Solomon was a man who understood so many things and had so many gifts and talents and abilities, yet, yet, as far as the biblical record is concerned, things ended very darkly for Solomon. So friends, I think God deliberately did that as a warning for us. And really, that's what I would say to you, Antoinette. That's why God did not include such a thing for us in his word. Let me go to the next question from Jesse, who asks, you mentioned Cornelius had a real relationship with God in your teaching, uh, enduring word. How can someone have a real relationship with God with, with Jesus Christ? Uh, well, without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesse, I, I would explain it like this. Solomon, excuse me, we were just talking about Solomon. Cornelius, as he's presented to us in the book of Acts, had a real, but maybe I would describe it as a beginning relationship with God. In other words, his relationship with God was just barely beginning when he um, was a God-fearer. But God came to him. God met him. God led him on. And I think that that's a very important thing to say. Uh, God was working in Cornelius's life, and Cornelius had some relationship with God, 
And through that real relationship with God, God led him to a real knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, it it would be just like um, the faithful Jewish people who hadn't really heard of Jesus. They had some kind of relationship with Jesus, with God, but it wasn't a full, or you could even say a salvific relationship with Jesus, uh, with God until they came in and through Jesus Christ. So, Jesse, I would say that the answer is this. It was just a pure beginning. It was the start. But when you take a look at the description of Cornelius in the book of Acts, and this is the description of him before Peter came and preached to him, Cornelius was a man who was praised by God for his righteousness. It doesn't mean that he was saved yet, but it means that he had some kind of beginning relationship with God. And the reality of his relationship with God was demonstrated by the fact that God came to him and drew him deeper in relationship, relationship that can only be found in and through God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hope that's helpful for you there, Jesse. Next question comes from Dusanka, who asks, The Bible says there is not one righteous, yet Enoch walked with God and pleased him so greatly that he did not face death and Noah was called righteous in the scriptures, thus saved from the flood. How do you explain this? Okay, well, Dusanka, please remember this. When the Bible says that there's not one righteous, that means not one righteous in himself. But the Bible makes it very plain. For example, with Abraham, all the way back in Abraham, in, I was going to say Abraham chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, which speaks of Abraham. It says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, the Bible sometimes uses that idea of righteousness as simply that. Yes, the believer is righteous. Dusanka, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and turned to God and, 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 and put your faith in who Jesus is and what he did for you, especially what he did for you at the cross and in his resurrection, then Dusanka, you are righteous. It's not a righteousness of your own making. It's a righteousness received in Jesus Christ. So, there is, of course, the righteousness that's available to people even in the Old Testament, a righteousness that's received by faith, and Abraham had that faith, and it was accounted in righteousness. This was faith in what God would do and provide through the Messiah. We have a righteousness by faith in what God has done in and through Jesus the Messiah. Our faith unto righteousness looks back, their faith unto righteousness looked forward. Okay, now, there's also another way, Dusanka, that righteousness is used in the scriptures. It's also used in the scriptures uh, in the sense of um, a relative righteousness among men. You'll find that phrase used. And, And certainly, we would say that relatively, there are some people more righteous than others. Now, again, we're not saying that in an absolute sense before God, but I mean, it's obvious all around us. There are some people who live more righteous lives before God than other people do. So, 
There's just those two senses in which the Bible would use that idea of righteousness. Um, There is the lack of righteousness in and of ourselves. There is the righteousness that we can receive as the free gift of God, being made righteous by faith. And then uh, finally, there is that righteousness that is a relative righteousness among men. Let me go on to the next question from Tunnel Banan, Shugotre, our Swedish subway viewer, who asks, how can people enjoy heaven if they have family members in hell? And how can the rich man in Luke 16 be thirsty in Hades when the soul doesn't need water? Okay, well, Tunnel Banan, I think that the key here is, first of all, understanding that our experience in heaven will be so overwhelmed with the understanding of who God is and how good and right God is in all that he does that these questions won't bother us. God will rightly and justly resolve all things in Jesus Christ. And as painful it is for us to contemplate people we know and love and care about being eternally separated from God in hell, ultimately, that works for the resolution of all things. God will resolve everything either under his righteous heavenly grace or under his righteous judgment of sin. But all things will be resolved. Now, again, I I understand that from our earthly perspective, we say, well, I I could never be happy knowing that. Well, listen, uh, we will be so overwhelmed by the greatness and the goodness of knowing God's wisdom in all things with that truth that Abraham mentioned in his conversation with the Lord, I believe it's in Genesis chapter 17, when he says, will not the judge of all the world do what is right? And of course he will. All the judgments of God are right and good. And we will recognize that in that day. But then you also say here um, about the rich man in Luke chapter 16, how could he be thirsty? Look, it's always difficult for us to talk about what life, what existence is like in the world beyond. The only thing we can liken it to are things that we know of on this world. So I suppose somebody could make the technical argument that the rich man in the story, I don't think it was a parable, but the rich man in the story that Jesus told in Uh, Luke chapter 16. I suppose somebody could make the technical argument, well, he wasn't thirsty. Uh, He didn't have a body. I don't know, but maybe he had something like a body. But if somebody wanted to say he didn't have a body, so he couldn't be thirsty. Listen, the best analogy we can give to what he did experience was thirst. That could be cooled by a soothing drop of water. So, We just have to give latitude towards the explanation of things that belong to another world that are put in terms of things in the world that we know 
and experience right here, right now. I hope that's helpful for you there. Let me go on to the next question from Chris, who asks, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that we're not saved by his works, but by his mercy. What would you say to those who say that repentance is a work? Repentance is clearly part of salvation and coming to God. Well, again, uh, in those terms, I would say that repentance is simply the partner of faith. Here's how I explained it before. If I were to say to somebody, uh, here I am on the West Coast of the United States, let's just say Los Angeles. If I were to say to somebody in New York, come to Los Angeles, I don't actually have to tell them, leave New York and come to Los Angeles. Coming to Los Angeles is in and of itself by definition to leave wherever you're at. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ is by definition to leave whatever else you have trusted in, believed on, clung to, relied upon. It's to leave those things. That's repentance. Now, I I would just say that that's not a work. That's turning to God. Now, certainly, repentance can be expressed in works. But the repentance that initially brings salvation need be nothing more than that interior decision given by the grace of God, but that interior decision to say, I will turn from those things. In the future, when a person does actually turn from those things, they're not saving themselves by turning from them, but they have received God's salvation by trusting in Jesus, in who he is and what he did for them, especially what he did in paying for their sins at the cross and in rising again to new life. And you can't truly embrace Jesus in faith unless you let go of whatever else you've had. So again, that initial decision of the heart, of the mind, of the will, if you will. Again, and I'm not trying to say for a moment that a person does those things apart from God's working in them. No, God forbid. A person can only repent. A person can only believe if God works in them first. Yet, God won't repent for them. God won't believe for them. But God works in them to both repent and believe. And those things in and of themselves don't require works at the moment. Then they believe. They received God's beautiful, powerful gift of salvation. They're born again by God's Spirit. Then they are saved unto good works, which do not save them, but are a legitimate demonstration of the truth that they are saved. So, Chris, I think you can see how with that fuller explanation... I am excluding repentance slash faith because I'm regarding them as two parts to the same thing. I'm regarding them as being different than works because we would agree with what it said in Titus chapter 3 verse 4 wholeheartedly that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy that he has saved us. Okay, next question comes from Polly, who asks, 
Will you clarify the Old Testament feasts and how they point to Jesus, especially the last few feasts? Pauly, um, I, I don't have the time to do that right now. What I would recommend to you is look up my commentary on Leviticus. Is it Leviticus chapter 7? Is that the chapter that speaks of the Feast of Israel? I'm turning to a Bible right now and looking. Leviticus chapter 7, I believe it is, that speaks of the Feasts of Israel. No, that's the trespass offering. Let me thumb through here. Leviticus, priestly service. Excuse me for licking my fingers. Maybe I was thinking it's Leviticus 17, Day of Atonement, Sanctity of Blood, Feast of Israel. No, excuse me, it is... Well, Leviticus chapter 23. Polly, look carefully at my commentary, EnduringWord.com. Just go to the commentary menu. You can find my commentary on Leviticus chapter 23. And there you'll find the explanation towards the end of that chapter. I was just looking at it recently, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. Look at the end of that chapter, and it will explain how those feasts point to Jesus, especially in the minds of some people, how the last three feasts are associated with the second coming of Jesus. It is interesting, Paulie, how the first four feasts of Israel are kind of grouped together, and those speak about the first coming of Jesus, and the last three feasts are grouped together after a separation, and they speak of the second coming of Jesus. You'll find that explained in my commentary in Leviticus chapter 23, towards the end of it there. Next question comes from David, who asks, how do you teach and practice fasting? In the Old Testament, it was often an expression of repentance and mourning. There's very little on fasting in the New Testament, even though many churches have corporate fasts today. David, it's just the practice of my wife to, and myself to periodically fast. We don't do it according to a strict schedule on a day out of the week. Now, the great example of fasting for me in my life has been my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, who has written a excellent book on fasting. Hopefully, we can link to it for you, maybe in the details of this video once it's posted. That book by Nils Bergstrom is called Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer, and you can get it on Amazon. I recommend it to you. Nils, for many years, has made it the practice of his life to fast two days a week, and he would have a, a set system of days. And of course, he would adjust it if there were special occasions or something like that. But generally speaking, he would fast two days a week and did that for many, many years, has done it for many, many years. Now, my wife and I, we, we don't have that same practice of designating a day or a couple days a week where we fast, but we will often, probably at least every other week, say, let's fast tomorrow. And, and we'll do this because it is presented in the New Testament as a normal practice of Christians. When Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. He didn't say if you pray, if you give, if you fast, but he said when you do those things. Again, these themes are developed very wonderfully by my father-in-law, Niels Bergstrom, in his book that you can get on Amazon, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. Okay, now, the bottom line is simply this, is that, um, yes, I practice fasting. Yes, it's something to be taught. Uh, and it's something that is 
widely neglected in the Christian world, much to our hurt. And there's many reasons why fasting is a good and beneficial practice. But let me give you part of it right here. It is a way to say no to our bodies, to ourselves. You know, we don't like to hear that, do we? We don't like the discipline of just saying no to ourselves. Um, I'm hungry, but no, I'm not going to eat for a set period of time. Now, look, there are some people who have eating disorders and such, and they they love doing that. But that, that's a different category altogether. I'm, I'm speaking of people apart from those sort of disorders. We, we just we want to eat when we want to eat. It is a powerful thing to say, my body and the appetites of my body do not rule my life. I'm not going to neglect. They're not unimportant. Normally, I'll feed. Normally, I'll see things, but I want to establish the principle that they are not the most important thing in my life. More important than my bodily desires is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and following after him. So, David, that's just a very brief idea But if you were to go to the New Testament passages that do speak about fasting, or the Old Testament ones, take a look at them in my commentary. You you can see more of my thoughts on this. And again, I'll recommend to you the book from my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, about fasting and prayer. All right, John Wisner asks the question. Hey, John, nice to see you, brother. From Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 How does this verse apply to Christians who sin in this regard? It says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Okay, well, John, you're asking, how does this apply to Christians? And I'm going to make a a distinction there. Because there's a different judgment that Christians face, believers, those who are saved, and those who have rejected Jesus Christ and his work for them. Those who have rejected Jesus will be sentenced, not really tried, but sentenced at the great white throne judgment described in the book of Revelation. Christians face a different judgment. Their judgment is a judgment of their works, of their fruit, of their reward. It's a judgment not for salvation or damnation. It's a judgment of reward. So, what I would just simply say to you is, is that part of our reward will be there um, described by the words we speak. It'll be measured by that. I, I can imagine that there are people who have done some good things for the Lord, but their words were filled with poison and bitterness. It it may be, and listen, I'm not the judge, the Lord is, but it may be that those people will find that there was no or little reward for them. So, we will have a judgment. Every believer will have a judgment before what Paul calls in Corinthians the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And I think that these idle words, these unwise words, will be taken into account there at the judgment seat of Christ. Then our final question. It's good because, man, I'm tired of talking here. So let me get to the last question from from Raquel who asks, 
Can you explain how it was that Enoch walked with God to the point that he never died but was translated to heaven? Raquel, that's a wonderful question, but I don't know if I can give you much of a detailed answer other than just to say that his walk with God, Enoch's walk with God, was simply a demonstration of his relationship with God. He had a real close relationship with God. He walked with God. And as it says in Genesis, he walked with God and was not, for the Lord took him. Later on in Hebrews chapter 11, he's pointed out as being a hero of the faith because of this. It shows what great faith Enoch had with God as a fruit of his real relationship with God. But walking with God was what God wanted to do and apparently did do with Adam and Eve. When God came to Adam and Eve and confronted them with his sin, he had come down to walk with them in the cool of the day. Now, we have reason to believe that in the Garden of Eden, God did that in some physical presence in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to believe that that was the case with Enoch, but he had a real relationship with God. And that's simply what is kind of defined by that idea. It's a metaphor, it's a symbol, to walk with God, just as much as we're told to walk in the Spirit later on in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that kind of literally we find where the Holy Spirit is and and walk with Him, but in the way we conduct our lives, walking in the Bible is used simply as a figure of speech referring to how we live our lives. Hope that's helpful for you there, Raquel. And I hope today has been helpful for you. Thank you for joining us today. So pleased that you could all make it. And I hope that you can join us next week where, God willing, I'll be with you again for another live question and answer time. Thank you for your prayers, for the work of Enduring Word, and we just are grateful to be able to do what we do continually uh, as God's people pray, as God provides, and as God opens doors for us to get free Bible resources out in as many languages and to as many people as God gives us the opportunity to reach. Thank you for that. God bless you, and we'll see you again next week, God willing. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.